All right. Good morning, St. Paul's. Thank you so much for joining us on live stream today. Uh, before I get into the message, I just want to make three quick announcements. Uh, first, I just want to uh, say again what Keith said before me, which is that we are having our Christmas Eve service as a live stream uh, at 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve, of course, this Thursday. And um, we really want to encourage you to participate in that. Um, of course, if you miss it at 5 p.m., you'll always be able to watch it later in the evening, just like you always can with our services. But we do really want to encourage you, if you can, to tune in at the same time so we have a little bit of that sense that we are worshiping together. Second announcement uh, is we are actually not going to have a live stream service on Sunday the 27th. And uh, there's several reasons for that. Um, we don't usually do that. That's very unusual for us to cancel a Sunday service. Uh, but we figured, given the circumstances, uh, just two days after Christmas, um, given that we cannot meet in person, given that we have the Christmas Eve service, we're just going to take that Sunday off and we'll be back as usual on January 3rd. And uh, we hope that you will, you'll join us when we return. And then one more announcement. Um, I know some of you are wondering when are in-person services going to resume? And I just wanted to give a little update on that. Uh, right now, we don't have a, a clear date to give you. Uh, but we are going to be monitoring the situation and we're going to reevaluate a couple weeks after the holidays to see uh, how the case level has responded uh, to the holiday season. And uh, we really, really do hope that we'll be able to offer an in-person service again soon. So just be reminded this is not a permanent state of affairs. Uh, I think we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and we just want to encourage you in the meantime Stick with us, stay connected to the church family, um, connect with people in the church, reach out to them, uh, connect with the live stream. If you're looking for a virtual small group, we have two more that will be starting in January. Uh, so send me an email if that's something you're interested in participating in. Um, keep the sacred appointment, as uh, Steve Bell and Eugene Peterson like to say. Um, let's. Uh, Let's, let's, let's keep, keep persevering through this uh, unusual time. It won't be like this forever. All right, so as Keith already mentioned, we've been in this series called Christmas Conversions, where we're looking at some of the most enduring Christmas movies that have a conversion, a character experiencing a dramatic change in attitude and perspective. And we've been considering how might these stories reflect biblical truth. Uh, two weeks ago, we did George Bailey's conversion in It's a Wonderful Life. Last week, we did Scrooge's in A Christmas Carol. And this week's conversion is The Grinch. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. I think Steve's going to play that later, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> he didn't want to touch that with a 39 and a half foot pole. So, How the Grinch Stole Christmas uh, was first published by Dr. Seuss in 1957. And then, I believe it was nine years later, yeah, 1966, uh, an animated version came out, which is considered the classic version now. Been a, there have been a few more film adaptations, more recent ones since then, but the one that I really am going to have in mind today is the 1966 animated classic version. 
Now, I imagine most of you know the story, but just in case, I'm going to do a quick recap. I think this one's a little easier to summarize than the last two movies. Uh, the Grinch is a hermit. He lives in isolation except for his poor dog, Max. And uh, down in the valley live the Who's. And every Who in Whoville loves Christmas a lot, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, does not. And every year the Who's give each other gifts and they set up decorations and they have a big feast of roast beast and they gather together and they sing Christmas songs and the Grinch looks down on it from his place on the mountain and he hates it. And he hates it so much that he decides to put a stop to it. So uh, one Christmas Eve he becomes a reverse Santa Claus and he gets a red suit together, he puts some antlers on his dog, he rigs a sleigh together and then he goes down into Whoville and he steals all their presents, all the decorations, all the food and he leaves nothing. And then he returns to the top of the mountain and he waits. And he says, they're just waking up, I know what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two, and then the Who's down in Whoville will all cry, boo-hoo. So cold. But as the Grinch waits, he starts to hear a sound rising over the snow. It starts off low, but then starts to grow. And the book says, the sound wasn't sad why this sound sounded merry. It couldn't be so, but it was. Mary, very. He stared down at Whoville. The Grinch popped his eyes. Then he shook. What he saw was a shocking surprise. Every Who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. And the Grinch is very puzzled by this. In fact, he's so puzzled that he thinks about it for three whole hours until he, his head gets sore. And then the Grinch thinks of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And with that realization, of course, the Grinch has his conversion moment. His heart grows three sizes larger. And then he goes back to Whoville and he returns all the presents and decorations and food. And then he actually even joins in on the Who's Christmas festivities, and he even carves the roast beast. So, what is behind the Grinch's change in heart? What causes this dramatic conversion? Well, the book is pretty clear that the reason is because the Grinch realizes that Christmas is about more than just stuff because he's taken away all the Who's stuff, and yet that hasn't robbed them of their joy, right? And there's something about that realization, that witness of the Who's, that dissolves the Grinch's Grinchiness and, uh, you know, gets rid of his cynicism and expands his heart. And this actually reminds me of something that Jesus said. Uh, Luke 12 Verse 15, he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, of course, the Grinch assumed that the Who's life 
consisted in the abundance of their possessions, or at least he assumed that the Who's thought that their life consisted in the abundance of their possessions, because he assumed that if all their stuff would be, was taken, then of course their joy is going to be taken as well. And you know, I don't think that the Grinch was unreasonable to think this at all. Many people, probably most people, do mistakenly believe that their joy, their happiness, uh, consists in the abundance of possessions. But apparently Whoville is an unusually sanctified community because even when their possessions are rudely taken, their joy is not taken. They have a kind of indestructible joy. One of the places in scripture where I think we see a similar kind of indestructible joy is Acts chapter 16. Uh, Paul and Silas, they have just been unjustly thrown in jail uh, simply because they, they healed a woman of demonic possession. And they have been beaten with rods, they've been strict, stripped naked, uh, they've been severely flogged, they've been placed in a cell with um, stocks on their feet, chains on their feet. And what do they do? It says that at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. You know, kind of like the Grinch listening to the Who's. And similar to the story of the Grinch, this story also ends with a conversion. Uh, Paul and Silas' jailer ends up coming to, the, to faith in Christ, and so does his whole family. When our joy is not dependent on our possessions and even on our circumstances, there's something that is so powerful about that. There's, there's a witness to that that is transformative for people because it's a witness that there is a source of hope that comes from beyond what we can see, beyond what we can own, right? A source of hope that cannot be destroyed, indestructible hope. Now, just to be clear, okay, when I use that word joy, uh, I'm not talking about walking around with a cheery plastic grin on our faces no matter what. Uh, I'm not saying that we're never supposed to feel grief or disappointment uh, or frustration. Fakeness is not a good witness to anybody. Most people see through that, rightfully. But when I use the word joy, when I talk about this, this hope, I'm talking about an attitude where we have, we have hope, a hope that endures even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our experiences of, of evil and suffering and injustice. I'm talking about the ability to be thankful uh, even in the hard times, even when all our stuff gets stolen. The ability to lament evil and injustice and death, while at the same time believing that Jesus has overcome those things, and we eventually will too. That's the kind of joy that I'm talking about. And it's that kind of joy, that kind of hope, that has power when it's witnessed to transform Grinches and cruel jailers. It's very important for those of us who follow Jesus to be the kind of people who are a little like the who's, right? The kind of people who have an indestructible hope, uh, the kind of people who are not looking to our possessions for happiness 
Are we those kind of people? Well, it's very natural for us to believe that life consists in the abundance of our possessions. That is a lie that is extremely difficult to unlearn. And it's a lie that does significant harm. It's important that we do unlearn it. Recently, a friend of mine shared an article uh, titled, Pathological Consumption Has Become So Normalized That We Scarcely Notice It. Uh, it's by someone named George Monbiot. And uh, the article was written with a little bit of a humorous language to get the point of cro- across. But I think it says something important. So let me read a few parts uh, from it. There's nothing they need, nothing they don't own already, nothing they even want. So you buy them a solar-powered waving queen, a belly button brush, a silver-plated ice cream tub holder, a hilarious inflatable Zimmer frame, a confection of plastic and electronics called Terry the Swearing Turtle. They seem amusing on the first day of Christmas, daft on the second, embarrassing on the third. By the twelfth day, they're in a landfill. For thirty seconds of dubious entertainment, or hedonic stimulus that lasts no longer than a nicotine hit, we commission the use of materials whose impacts will ramify for generations. And he goes on to say that it's estimated that 1% of goods that are purchased are still in use six months after they're purchased. And I, I can't vouch for the validity of that statistic, but that's his estimation. Um, and apparently that's based on, on some research. So, um, and many of those pointless products that are out of circulation in less than six months have actually uh, profound negative impacts on the communities where they're produced and on the environment, uh, both now and for future generations. And then he adds... So effectively have governments, the media, and advertisers associated consumption with prosperity and happiness that to say these things is to expose yourself to ridicule. Now, I think he goes a little bit too far there. Uh, I don't know if that's necessarily true. But I do think he's right that we have a tendency to associate prosperity, consumption, uh, prosperity and consumption, happiness and consumption, buying more and more stuff, with actually finding joy. And I do think he's right that to media and advertisers certainly encourage that association. Perhaps to some extent the government uh, encourages that association. But I don't think we even need those, those things to encourage the association that much. I think that what is going on here is a heart issue which Jesus was trying to correct, which is that we just have this natural tendency to believe that life is found in the abundance of our possessions. When that belief isn't challenged or corrected, it just runs out of control. And it has these, these crazy negative impacts, you know, like, like producing and buying stuff that we don't even really want or need uh, that actually, in the long run, causes harm. Now, okay... Don't misunderstand me. I am not anti-gift-giving. I don't think Jesus is anti-gift-giving. I'm giving gifts this Christmas. I'll be happy to receive gifts this Christmas. 
Uh, there's nothing wrong uh, with that. But what we need to challenge is this, this belief that we have, sometimes uh, without even realizing it, that life consists in the abundance of our possessions. That is a lie that we have to confront because if we don't, it leads to harm, it leads to waste, and ultimately it leads to dissatisfaction. You know, when we give gifts, it's probably a little late uh, for this, this year, but in the future, you know, when we're buying gifts, we should probably ask ourselves questions like, is this thing I'm buying probably just going to end up in a landfill in a few weeks or months? Um, is it something useful? Is it something that will in some way uh, contribute to the well-being of the recipient, you know, emotionally, spiritually, physically? You know, if it's not, what are we doing? <laughs> All we're really doing is, you know, uh, paying homage to the god of consumerism, uh, paying homage to the idea that life is found in the abundance of possessions. But if life isn't found in the abundance of possessions, well then where is it found? Now the story of the Grinch doesn't directly address that question. Um, it hints that it's found somewhere else. It, it's clear that it's found somewhere else. And on some intuitive level, we know, yes, that's true, that's right. That's why the story has endured. Um, but where is it found? Where are the who's finding it? Well, you can imagine that someone might say something like, well, they're finding it in each other. You know, even though all their stuff is taken, they so value their relationships with one another and they still have each other. And so they're, they're able to sing and, and be joyful because of that. Well, that perspective does have some truth to it. The idea that we should draw our life and our joy more from our relationships than from our possessions and from our money is something that I believe Jesus would definitely affirm. I mean, Jesus said the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, not to love your stuff as yourself. Uh, so that would follow. And in fact, the idea that we're supposed to value our relationships and find life there more than we find it in our stuff is actually uh, part of the passage that I keep referencing. If we go and look at it in context, uh, look, at, look at why Jesus says uh, what he says. Uh, in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, it be, the, the, the exchange begins with someone in the crowd saying to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So this guy comes to Jesus with a family dispute, a family dispute about money. And I'm sure that's something that some of us can relate to. And he wants Jesus to use his authority to rule in his favor, you know, kind of like a kid going to mom or dad and saying, you know, let my brother give me a turn with the toy, make him share. Now, I don't know whether this guy was in the right or not. I don't know whether he was entitled to this money. But Jesus does not take a side in the dispute. He says, ah, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? Basically, this is not my problem. But instead, he uses this as an opportunity to teach this man something about where his heart should be. 
right? And that's when he says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And I think what Jesus is suggesting to this man is that he should value the relationship with his brother more than he values the inheritance, more than he values money and possessions. Throughout history, countless families have divided because of disputes like this. Uh, there are families that are not speaking to each other this Christmas because they still have resentment over some dispute that has something to do with money or possessions. And what I hear Jesus saying here is the value of your relationships should be more important to you than money because life isn't found in possessions. Even if you manage to get that inheritance, that wouldn't be where the life was. Now, you know, that's not to say that if a family member tries to steal the inheritance that uh, there's, it's not appropriate to confront them about that or to try and do something about that or to be upset about it. But when we find ourselves in these kinds of conflicts, we have to remember what really is important. We have to remember where the life is really found. And it's not found in stuff. And that means that when we, when we come to this, these disagreements, we should do it in a way that makes it clear, I value my brother, my sister, my mother, my father, more than money. You know, given the fact that life is found more in relationships than in money and stuff, maybe the best gift that some of us can give this year is forgiveness. You know, both to our family members and to ourselves. Something to think about. So it's good to recognize the importance of relationships. But... The story of the Grinch hints that the source of the whose joy goes deeper than that. Uh, generally speaking, the source of their joy is Christmas, which apparently is something more than the gifts, more than decorations, more than food, and I think more than even each other. Now, I don't know if Dr. Seuss knows exactly what that something more is, but we should be able to agree with this silly story and say, yes, there is something more to Christmas. And that something is a source of indestructible joy. That something is the source of true life. The life that cannot be found in an abundance of possessions. And that something is Jesus. Jesus said that he came to bring life so that, and to bring it to the full. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And he said, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And he invites us to experience that life when he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. We all have longing in our hearts, every one of us, which Jesus describes as thirst, metaphorically speaking. And the longing that we have, whether we realize it or not, is for something beyond the physical, something that this world cannot give us, something that cannot be wrapped up in a package and put under the tree, and something that we can't even find in another human being. We have a longing to know God and to be known by him. And when we have that, then we have access to indestructible joy. We have access to hope that endures 
even when the Grinches of life steal our presence. And that is what Jesus offers to us. When we understand what the birth of Jesus is really all about, what Christmas is all about, it should be a source of indestructible joy. Because that baby in a manger is not just an ordinary baby. He's God in the flesh. He is God radically humbling himself in order to rescue us from sin and death. He's God radically humbling himself to bridge the divide between himself and us. That baby in a manger reveals that God is with us. With us. He's not just watching us from afar. He's not just a a casual spectator judging us from a distance. He's with us and for us. And he offers us life, now and forever, indestructible hope. Let's pray. Lord, I pray if any of us are feeling grinchy this season, that you would help us to experience this indestructible hope that Christmas is all about. Help us to recognize the significance of you coming into the world as a baby, taking on human flesh to rescue us from sin and death. And Lord, as as we recognize that that is where our hope is found, free us from belief in the lie that life is found in the abundance of possessions. And as you free us from that, Lord, uh, help us to be able to enjoy the good things that you have made and and, uh, the good things in this world. Lord, I know that when we're no longer looking to those things to give us fullness of life, then we actually become able to enjoy them a little bit more. So Lord, we just ask that this Christmas you give us the right perspective and that you'd fill us with your joy and your hope. In Jesus' name, amen.